Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist and author based in West Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to our podcast, which I call It's Not About the Sex, also the title of my recent book. Here we focus on all topics related to compulsive sexual behavior, often referred to as sex addiction. In particular, we explore ways to build long-term sustainable recovery while establishing more meaningful connection and greater intimacy. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints, brand new perspectives, and practical user-friendly tools toward living a more deeply connected life. Let's get started. Sexual health author, trainer, and psychotherapist Douglas Braun Harvey bridges sexual and mental health and facilitates organizational change. In 2013, Doug Braun Harvey and Al Killen Harvey co-founded the Harvey Institute, an international education, training, consulting, and supervision service for improving healthcare through integration of sexual health. Since 1993, he has been developing and implementing a sexual health-based treatment approach for men with out-of-control sexual behavior, OCSB. His recent book, Treating Out-of-Control Sexual Behavior, Rethinking Sex Addiction, written with co-author Michael Vigorito, was published in 2016. Previous publications include Sexual Health and Recovery, Professional Counselor's Manual, 2011, and Sexual Health in Drug and Alcohol Treatment, Group Facilitator's Manual, 2009. From 1987 to 2019, Doug provided individual and group therapy in his San Diego, California private practice. Thank you so much for being with us today, Doug. I so appreciate it. Oh, it's great to be here, Andrew, and uh, to uh, follow up with a, a discussion when uh, you were in New York and we uh, talked in New York before COVID um, as uh, being at the American Group Psychotherapy Association conference. So it's nice to sort of have this conversation following up from that contact. Yes, absolutely. And and I agree. I, I always like our little chances to to touch base and to see where each other is and in our careers. And 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 I just want to say on a personal note, I'm really, really inspired by um your book with Michael. It it really has framed things in a way that not only has been provocative for me, but on a personal and professional level has helped me to expand my language and my perspective on on what compulsive sexual behavior is is really about. So I, I just mm -hmm. want to express gratitude for that. And I wanted to start because not all of our listeners know what sexual health as a term really means. And I and I, I know you've devoted much of your career to sexual health and 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 since many of our listeners are just getting familiar with what that means, how, how would mm -hmm. you define it? And, and how did you end up specializing in this area? I think, first of all, is when I talk about sexual health, I really draw on the definitions that have been created and really promoted by international bodies throughout the world that have really sat with people from cultures and countries throughout the world who have tried to think about the idea of sexual health. And, and why the ideas needed to be talked about is sexual health, until just a few years ago, uh, you know, 40 or more years ago, sexual health was really two things. It meant you, uh, you avoided an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy, 
or it meant you avoided having a sexually transmitted infection. And that was pretty much what sexual health was on the planet until, you know, the mid-1970s, the late 70s. Um, mm -hmm. And so sexual health tended to be thought of as the avoidance of a negative sexual health outcome. Mm. And, and health, health is not the absence of a problem. Health is not the absence mm -hmm. of a disease. Health is an actual destination. Health has form and definition. And so it wasn't until the 70s and 80s that people got together and said, okay, if sexual health is a destination, what does that destination look like? Mm -hmm. And that's really where definitions of sexual health first started in the World Health Organization, the Pan, all sorts of different organizations. Um, the definition I like to describe, this comes from the World Health Organization uh, from 2006. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a couple of things about this definition. I won't read it directly, but there's three aspects to a sexual health definition. One is what I just said. Sexual health is not just the absence of a problem. So, you, you know, just because you don't have a sexual disease or a sexual disorder or sexual infirmity does not mean you have sexual health. The middle part of the sexual health definition with the World Health Organization is really the central narrative. The central narrative of a sexual health definition is that we all as human beings have to balance in our sexual lives both the safety aspects of sexuality with the pleasure aspects of sexuality. So that think of sexual health as a constant algorithm of balancing how to engage in all sorts of aspects of what sexuality and sexual health and sexual behaviors are. And we have to balance it with being safe, but also having pleasure. That's, that's, and that's not a precise equation that every person in every sexual situation is having to balance safety with pleasure. That's what sexual health is. And then the last definition uh, part of sexual health is, the, is, is really more of an advocacy and rights perspective, that there are certain sexual rights human beings have. Uh, and the World Health Organization has established 16 sexual rights of, of, for human beings on the planet. So if you're interested in, you could just go to the World Health Organization sexual rights or the World Health Organization definition of sexual health, and you could learn mm -hmm. more about this. But those are the three main ideas that sexual health is more than the absence of a problem. Mm -hmm. Sexual health is the balance between safety and pleasure that's inherent in all sexual interactions. Mm -hmm. And that sexual health is a human right for everybody on the planet. You know, two things stand out for me. One is that this is an international definition, right? This is put together by folks from all around the world who are experts and who have come up with this way of looking at sexual health. And I, I, I think that in itself is a beautiful thing that people came together uh, to really define this really beautifully. The other piece that came to mind is it reminds me a little bit of positive psychology in the sense that it's not about what's wrong, but it's about what's right. Mm -hmm. And and I think what, what you're saying is that it's it's looking at pleasure. It's looking at what what is it that would be more, I'll just add some words, fun and liberating and, and satisfying, et cetera. And, and, and that it's not looking at just, oh, is there a problem with erectile dysfunction or is there a problem with, with some from, is there a problem with, with the, the sexual right. issue? So I, I just think that's uh, such a refreshing way of looking at it. 
I'll add one other thing, Andrew, mm-hmm. that is important just from the American context. Um, I do not teach in my trainings the, the, the current definition of sexual health from the U.S. federal government. Mm. Uh, because, uh, that's more, that's from 2011 and mm-hmm. it's, uh, from the, uh, from, uh, the health and, uh, uh, AIDS division, HIV prevention division of health and human services. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's really interesting about that definition, and I won't go into it, um, the United States government specifically took the word pleasure out wow. of the definition of sexual health. So when you read the U S government's current working definition of sexual health, they and I know people that were in the room when these discussions happened. Uh-huh. The word pleasure was actually removed and was not uh, was not permitted to be put in the definition. It's appalling. I mean, I, I, I think culturally what you're saying is that the pur- the puritanical echoes are still part of those discussions and, and that internationally there's a much broader perspective and a much more sounds like open minded and open hearted perspective. Well, it, it, how I think of this is the only way you know you're having an, a sexual health conversation, not a top, not a conversation about sex. Mm-hmm. But if you're having a sexual health conversation, you're balancing the pleasure and the safety of sexuality in your conversation. Right. You, you ha- so, so that oftentimes the dilemma with sexual conversations in our culture is what to do with the pleasure. Right. We're far more comfortable talking about sex when sex harms people mm. than when it is a source of pleasure. Wow. So it's, it's, it's so upside down. So pleasure is really taboo in our society. And that goes way back. The, the roots of that are so deep, yeah. so deep. And so you can see how the echoes of it remain in even uh, government and science discussions around something as basic to fundamental health as sexual health. Sure. Well, well, thank you for, for that clarification. And I wanted to segue into talking a little bit about addictive compulsive behaviors. And as, as you and I know, uh, Phil Flores wrote a book many years ago called Addiction as an Attachment Disorder. And he highlighted the fact that addictive behaviors are, are what we see on the surface, but underneath are attachment ruptures, trauma, and what I call brokenheartedness. So how do you see attachment styles influencing uh, OCSB or out-of-control sexual behavior? Well, it, uh, Michael and I wrote about this in our book. Um, we, we defined out-of-control sexual behavior, I think, first and foremost, as not a pathology, a disease, a syndrome, or an addictive process. Mm. So there is a segment of people who identify with having significantly out of control sexual behavior, which is the term I use in the general description. Mm -hmm. And I use out of control sexual behavior because it doesn't have a diagnostic implication in order to describe the behavior. Where compulsive and addiction not only describes a kind of behavior, but it also implies a certain um, uh, narrative or thesis for why the behavior exists. Mm -hmm. So that's where OCSB came from as well. Um, but the, the two important things, ever since this behavior has been really a focus of, 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 of attention in the last 40, 50 years, there has been this elusive search for a clinical disorder or a diagnostic entity 
that is specific to this human behavior. And we have yet to find one that has had scientific or, or research mm -hmm. or even clinical consensus amongst people in our own country and certainly around the world. Um, so, so yes, there's this issue of how people behave sexually that they are concerned about. They feel out of control for a variety of reasons. Um, but there is no agreed upon diagnostic condition for this. Um, so that's one thing that I think is important to think about. So when I think about this, I'm interested in, I think, a much larger group of people. There might be a smaller group of people eventually we identify that have a, a, dis a disorder mm -hmm. related to their sexual mm -hmm. behavior. But I think that's a minority of the people currently identifying with this problem. Mm -hmm. I think the majority of the people have a problem, not a disease. Mm -hmm. And we've not really been interested in helping those people change their behavior without first having to say they have a disease. Mm -hmm. So the OCSB model is really set up to saying this is a sexual health problem rather than a sexual health disease. Mm -hmm. And it's a problem specifically related to somebody feeling. It's, 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 it's a self-experience. I feel this myself, that my sexual urges, thoughts, and behaviors for me feel out of control. Mm -hmm. And so that doesn't require a, um, a specific etiology or, or, so, or cause mm -hmm. for a person to feel out of control. As, as Marty Klein, this uh, sex, uh, sexologist says, just because somebody feels out of control doesn't mean they are out of control. Mm -hmm. So it's really more of an embodied felt sense uh, for feeling out of control. Um, and so then when people say I have sexual compulsion or I have sexual addiction, they may not be saying that I have a disease process. What they may be saying is there's something happening inside me that I feel out of control with my sexual lives. And the research is clear around three specific areas that have actually shown continuity amongst populations of men who feel sexually out of control. One is a, a large percentage of this population doesn't feel like they have the ability to regulate themselves very well. They have, have self-regulation problems. They also have attachment concerns where they, they, uh, their attachment styles and the way in which they form attachments in relationships is very commonly disrupted and not, not, not you know, they're not, these are not people with a lot of secure attachments. Um, and then the, the third thing is many people who feel sexually out of control have what we call erotic conflicts, what they desire, what they enjoy, what they find pleasurable in their sexual lives is a, is a significant conflict for their religion, for their value systems, for their belief that they want to be a heterosexual person, for the belief that they're a completely monogamous person. There can be all sorts of dilemmas, uh, that, their sexual and erotic pleasure is a source of great conflict. And the way they've resolved that conflict is through avoidance or through secrecy. And of course, that means they're probably not going to regulate themselves very well. And if they have that kind of secrecy around erotic conflicts, they're not going to be forming deep loving attachments with people if who they are erotically must be kept hidden from the people they love. So I'm going to highlight what you just said, because I think it's so important and to make sure that I'm hearing it correctly and that our listeners are mm -hmm. getting this. So the three areas that you're looking 
at when it comes to somebody with out of control sexual behavior is regulation concerns, attachment disruptions, and erotic conflicts. Is that right? Right. Those are the three that we specifically look at when men are saying, I feel sexually out of control. Now, there's some other factors we call vulnerability factors that have to be assessed beforehand because somebody might have a serious problem with their relationship with substances. Somebody might have a, an untreated or an underdiagnosed or undertreated uh, mental health condition. They may be living in a situation of extreme sense of violence, either interpersonal violence or levels of high danger or lack of safety and violence in their environment. Uh, or they might have a medical or untreated um, you know, physical condition or disorder that's been underdiagnosed and treated. So you want to make sure those areas of their lives have been assessed well before you start moving into the attachment regulation and erotic conflict areas specific to out-of-control sexual behavior. Because all four of those factors I just talked about can contribute and then some situations be the major factor that is the reason the person feels sexually out of control. Mm. So in other words, you don't want to put the cart before the horse. Well, what, 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 what I like to say is our field, the mental health field, when it comes to out-of-control sexual behavior, suffers from premature evaluation. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and I always like to tell mental health professionals, there's help for you. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so just to clarify for, for those who may not get the, the, the joke, it, part of what you're saying is that some clinicians jump to conclusions and have not really sorted out every, all of the possible what you call vulnerabilities before yes. they have moved on to looking at the, the the behaviors, whatever they may be. The factors, the factors that contribute to out of control sexual behavior. Got it. That's fantastic. And and, and Andrew, there's one other factor I want to add to this. Mm -hmm. And I, this is my this is my empathy for mental health professionals. Mm. Our profession is primarily a sexually illiterate profession. Mm -hmm. Most mental health professionals are not going to say, I'm really comfortable dealing with the sexuality of my clients. I've been well trained to address the sexual concerns that people bring to therapy. And I've had great supervision and I've had lots of great training on how to deal with many complex sexual issues that come to my office. Mm -hmm. That's not a common statement about mental health professionals. Right. And so oftentimes this premature evaluation that I sort of, you know, kind of tongue in cheek make reference mm -hmm. to, I think is a reflection of the number one uh, kind of strategy mental health professionals have been found to have in sex research. And when we look at this is that when, when therapists are uncomfortable dealing with sexuality, uh, their number one strategy is avoidance. Mm -hmm. They avoid the subject, they avoid talking about it, and that avoidance style becomes a, an important coping mechanism. So then when a client might be feeling sexually out of control or having some concerns about their sexual behavior, a, a great way to avoid a more in-depth conversation is to, to just jump to the conclusion that they're a sex addict and get going. Because mm -hmm. then they don't have to deal with all the nuances of actually having a, a difficult conversation around a lot of sexual details with a client. Before jumping to any conclusion. Right. 
Yeah, I'm taking a deep breath because on a personal note, I was one of those people who had a human sexuality course in grad school, which was literally 30 years ago. And, Mm -hmm. And I picked up pieces along the way, but I've never had any formal training in sexual health in, in, in depth, I should say. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, um, what I hear you saying is that there's, there's really an epidemic of clinicians who have had very, very little training in sexual health and sexual literacy. And, yes. and that as a profession and maybe as a, a society, we're, we're just way behind. And, and, and yet, why aren't we required to have sexual health training on a regular basis, just like law and ethics and just like supervision or whatever those mm-hmm. those required courses are for our, our licensure? So I, I'm, yeah. I, I don't know if that's something that you or any of your colleagues are working on, but it just seems like such a disservice. Well, Michael and I in our book, the Treating uh, Out-of-Control Sexual Behavior, Rethinking Sex Addiction, which is a professional manual, right for clinicians. It's it's not a book around this human behavior mm-hmm. for the general public. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we said in our introduction to the book, and we really mean this, is this entire book was written for therapists so that the therapist could protect the client from themselves. Mm-hmm. That the, the, real, the real issue you're speaking of, Andrew, mm-hmm. is we have to protect our clients from us sometimes as clinicians. Right. And when it comes to sex and particularly out of control sex Mm -hmm. and sexual behavior that might people have biases or opinions or different values or even judge or condemn or feel disgusted Mm -hmm. by. Um, uh, If therapists haven't been given lots of good experience on how to manage all those aspects Mm -hmm. of reactions Mm -hmm. to sexuality, they may not be adequately protecting the client from their own biases and their own opinions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I just want to, say that when I read your book, which I did read from cover to cover, and, and believe me, I don't read all books uh, from cover to cover, but you guys really inspired me and, and provoked me to look at parts of myself that I wasn't quite looking at from that angle. I, I, I think you know, Doug, that part of my own recovery and part of being in the 12-step rooms for what they call sexual compulsion or sexual addiction mm-hmm. has, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I, I grew up with that language from the early nineties. We all did. Yeah. Andrew, we all did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we all did. There's nobody that escaped that one. Believe me. <laughs> right. Right. But I think what was so impressive about sitting in the workshop with you and Michael last uh, February was the experience of languaging and respect and offering a, a broader way of looking at out of control sexual behavior um, through the lens of 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 really of curiosity. That's what I took from mm-hmm. it. And I'm wondering if you can just share a little bit more. For instance, if if a client comes into you for the first time, and mm-hmm. and you're talking with him or you're exploring what is happening with him, oftentimes and we both know this. People will come into the office and say, um, so Doug, I, I, I'm coming to you because I'm a sex addict. And Oh my gosh, they say Andrew, they don't wait till the <laughs> office. They say that they say that on the phone. Right. 
you, you know, or they say it in an email. I mean, it is, it is, it's like, it's like going to the grocery store and getting facial tissues. You don't say I'm going to go get facial <laughs> tissues. You say I'm going to get Kleenex. Right. right? And so sex addiction is the word. That's all there is to yeah. it. Yeah. But, but can you say a little bit about how you work with that? Because it's not that, that you're taking away language from people. I really do get that you're very respectful about that, but but in a way you're you're opening the aperture to some other possibilities. And so, how would you address uh, that when somebody comes in saying, "I'm a sex addict and I need help"? When somebody calls themselves a sex addict, I don't want to assume I know anything about what they're telling me about themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't want that phrase to be a substitute for them educating me about the, what they want me to know about their sex life. And so when somebody says to me, I'm a sex addict, I might say something like, well, how long have you used that, that phrase to describe why you're here? When did you first start using that language to describe the, the concerns you're bringing to me today? Um, uh, and so I want to get the history of their relationship with that language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'll usually ask them something like, what is it you want me to understand about you? When you use that phrase, what do you, what am I supposed to mm-hmm. know about Beautiful. you when you tell me mm-hmm. that? Uh, so it, it, I, it, uh, so again, I, I, in, in quite frankly, Andrew, I'm protecting the client from me in that moment mm-hmm. because I'm protecting the client from my assumptions mm-hmm. that I somehow know what they're talking about because they call themselves a sex addict. I have no idea what they're talking about. All I know is that's the word they say. Everything else I need to learn from them. Right. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about a, a panel that I listened to. Marty Klein was on it. Um, um, Alex Katahakis was on it. A few other people were on it. And they were... Yeah, I was invited to be on that panel and I turned them down. Oh, tell me why. <laughs> um, because it was for the Society for the Advancement of Sexual right. Health at their national conference. And I've been a part of that organization for many, many years, and I stopped attending that conversation, that con- that conference and that organization, because they call themselves the Society for the Advancement of Sexual Health. Um, and yet they have historically been, for their entire inception, uh, an organization around supporting sex addiction treatment providers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they're trying to make a change, mm-hmm. but... Um, I used to go to those conferences and give a presentation. Michael and I would go to their national conference and we'd give a presentation and four people would come to the room. And in the next door room, there was a sex addiction presentation and 300 people. Mm, were there. Yeah. And so I, you know, I, I just wasn't, I, I, I'm not, I'm no longer wanting to spend my energy talking with other people who have other ideas and, and who, who believe in their ideas. That's fine. I, sexual health is such a rare conversation to have. I'd much rather have a conversation like you and I are sure. having, where we just get the platform for a little while, this conversation. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of places people can learn about sex addiction, mm-hmm. um, but there's very few places people have the conversation you and I are having. So so that's why I chose not to be there. But that's an aside. What, 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 what yeah. was your experience of the panel? It was interesting because it was very heated, and mm-hmm. it was... Um, there was a lot of conviction from each person sharing because mm-hmm. the the language was it was almost like bumper cars it, it instead of mm-hmm. of full acceptance of different people describing things differently 
uh, what what seemed to happen was there was uh, a bit of on the one hand some respect for one another but on the other hand some um very strong feelings and and with the emphasis on feelings um very strong mm -hmm. feelings about right and wrong and and so yeah. what 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 i um have been evolving towards is really wanting to step fully into more of a sexual health model and but mm -hmm. i have been in 12 step forever and so it's part of mm -hmm. me yet I, I i don't feel that pathologizing or the disease model or medical model really fits for for um, any of this so so mm -hmm. in in that panel what really I, I was left with was this idea that, huh, so one person is talking about sex addiction. One person is talking about problematic sexual behavior. Another person is talking about compulsive sexual behavior. And, mm -hmm. and I, I think this is my role in life, Doug, but I tend to, to, to stand somewhere in the middle because mm -hmm. I, I, I just think there's a lot of suffering out there. And, and what's most mm -hmm. important is that the people who are suffering get the help that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I, it's interesting that you bowed out of that particular panel, because I, I really respect that you didn't want to get into the fray, that that wasn't. Well, well, if you notice your, your, your walk away from that experience was li listening to people argue. Right. I'm more interested in people being curious and understanding the differences in the way people think. Mm-hmm. And and what you saw on that stage was was a couple of people who really believe this is a disease or a disorder, and one person who doesn't. Mm -hmm. What I think we haven't understand, we have we have not established in any mm -hmm. way how to differentiate between those two That's groups. Right. And I think we overdiagnose people who have a problem mm -hmm. because we don't have a clear enough threshold of when there's a disease process present. Right. And we have to be really careful if we're going to put a disease process on sexual behavior. Because the mental health field has been there many times and got it wrong. Right. And so I'm, I'm very cautious about absolutely. That. And as, as you and I know, it perpetuates shame. And that's the last thing that we want to be doing. Well, it, but here's the other side of it. A disease conceptualization also rescues people from the condemnation of sin. We're now seeing with porn addiction, the, the by far the largest group of people who identify self-diagnosis or self-identify as porn addicts are people from very high fundamentalist religious communities because their enjoyment of sexual imagery is a direct conflict with their relationship with God, their sacred texts, and their religious community. Wow. That is a very painful conflict. Andrew. Sure. The pain of those conflicts are so deep. And so having a, 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 an identity mm -hmm of a porn addict with it has a, you know, a recovery process and, and a disease conceptualization and a long tradition of recovery from other kinds of addictive processes with God mm -hmm. while having this behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, before there were diseases for sex, there was evil. Mm -hmm. So the disease was a disease was a progress, right? But that doesn't mean every sexual concern has to be a disease to to solve this terrible conflict between morals, religion, and sexuality. Mm -hmm. Those are painful, painful dilemmas. And I would hate to see a disease being the solution to that conflict. Mm -hmm. If it's not really a disease. Sure. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I'm I'm so um, taken with what you're saying right now, and and I had never thought of it in those terms in term in in the context of folks who are dealing with value conflicts, religious conflicts, um, that that kind of thing that is so deep rooted and and is you're right can be something that in a way gets um, muddied actually by calling it, uh, putting it into the disease model. Well, but from a look at the cultural context, if somebody says they're a porn addict in a deeply religious community, Uh the religious community does not shun them and throw them away. Right, exactly. You you get help for that. And you get to stay a member of your beloved community and your culture and everything, you know, that, you know, these, these faith communities mean everything to people. Sure. This is such a, a terribly difficult dilemma for some people. Right. So for them to say in those communities, I'm a porn addict, lets them remain attached. Mm. That's a big deal. Yes. And, and if I'm hearing you correctly, is, is, really about self-preservation sometimes. Yes, that's right. Oh, I love that, Andrew. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great phrase. You know, when it's about self-preservation, you know, we don't get into nuance. Hmm. Yeah. Huh. So But 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 that's the cultural context. Right. The scientific community and the mental health professional community has a different standard of when language is used in a certain way. The public can do what they want, but, you know, we have a different standard. We are accountable to science. We're, uh, we have to balance reason with culture and all sorts of other things to understand mental health issues. Um, you know, we, we can't let mental, uh, mental health diagnosis be offered as a solution for people for their religious conflicts. That's not an appropriate use of medical diagnosis. Uh. I um it, it takes my breath away a little bit because I'm I'm just thinking about the the, the numbers of folks who are just in, in deep conflict around that. Um, yes. And, yes, they are. Right. And and it's not just the religious communities. It's it's also folks who are in monogamous relationships who are their value system is about staying monogamous and and being um you know, um, faithful, whatever that means to them. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's the same idea. Well, I, in the OCA, let me, let me just do one language thing to Andrew. Please. In the OCSB world, we call that keeping an agreement. We don't use faithful. Very good. Yeah. All relationships are founded on agreements mm-hmm. and people without a control sexual behavior unilaterally change their relationship agreements without negotiating them with their partner. Sure. Yeah. So I wonder if the word, and I don't know this, but is the word faithful from the faith communities? Faithful is, um, faithful comes from wedding vows. I see. Uh So when, and it's vague, it's not clear, right? Right. right. So the joke is uh, my husband and I will will be at weddings and we'll hear people say these vague words about, you know, till death do us part fidelity and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, you Mm -hmm. know, and I'll lean over to my husband. I'll say, you know, that's the last time they're going to talk about that. Yeah, right. But you're really saying to take it to the next level is is really spelling it out with one another so that there's a mutual understanding, yes. also known as an agreement. And, also known as agreement. Right. Yeah, we do we do that a lot better when it comes to selling a house than it does <laughs> uh, moving in with somebody. Exactly. Right. 
Interesting. So before we wind down, and I, I really could talk all day with you, Doug, but but I'm wondering if, if there's maybe a few takeaways that you would like our listeners to consider after hearing this podcast. The next time you hear somebody use the phrase sex addiction, ask them what they mean. Don't just make that the end of the conversation. Mm-hmm. In our country, we let that be the end of the conversation as if something really meaningful and, and, and clearly understandable has been said. And I just don't think that. I think a person is trying to tell you something. I don't know what they're trying to tell you. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a relationship and uh, let's say somebody has, you've discovered they're looking at sexual imagery or they're on live chat lines, or maybe they've gone to a, a place where they've paid for some sort of sexual service. Somebody takes their clothes off uh, nudity or, uh, somebody masturbates in front of them or, you know, all these different things that can happen with, with, with transactional sex. And you discover this and you're, you're shocked. Um, uh, one of the ways often people deal with that moment of shock is immediately move to the discussion of whether they're a sex addict or not. And I think the discussion that gets missed is what is the meaning of this activity for you? Mm-hmm. And boy, that's a hard conversation to have when you are hurt, betrayed, and feeling repulsed by this person you love. That really wraps up some super important points from from our discussion today, Doug. I I cannot thank you enough for being a part of our podcast. Um, What you bring to the field is absolutely fantastic and means so much to me personally. And, um, you know, I just enjoyed speaking with you whenever I see you. And I, I do look forward to our paths crossing again, hopefully sometime soon. Well, Andrew, if I can just also say, it means a lot to me that you wanted to have this conversation. Mm. Uh, it says a lot about you. It says a lot about your uh, values and who you are as a human being. Uh, you remain curious, you remain open. Uh, and I really respect that about you. And I, I just really valued our conversation. Mm, thank you so much, Doug. Take good care and we'll be in touch one way or the other. Thank you for listening today. It was inspiring sharing the time today with my colleague and friend, Doug Braun Harvey, and discussing this really significant topic that affects all of those affected by out-of-control sexual behavior. Doug can be reached through his website at www.theharveyinstitute.com. Be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, or please share our podcast on Spotify. And if there are any topics you would like us to discuss in the future, please just let us know. I look forward to you joining us on future podcasts, and thanks again for being with us today.